0: Who were before you let's pray together father now we pray that your spirit would give us guidance that we would have eyes to see we would have ears to hear uh, lord that we would not be guilty of those who hear the word and don't obey it but the lord our desire like in the parable of the sower our desire would be to those who hear the word the word receives Uh, and has a a fitting soil in which to take root and that our lives uh, would yield good fruit in light of your word as it comes to us this day. We pray this now in Jesus' name, amen. When I was traveling the majority world working for an orality-based missions organization, I came to a very unsettling conviction it became painfully clear to me that evangelical Christianity in the United States is highly syncretistic. Well, what does that mean? What does that word syncretistic convey? Well, it means that the name of Jesus and the concepts of Christianity are commandeered and then combined with a pre-existing religious worldview worldview in a way that does great violence to biblical Christianity. We take bits and pieces, and we tape it on, we add it on, we tack it on to that which we already believe. At its heart, it's an attempt to hold Jesus hostage, to hold him captive in order to wrangle a sense of blessing for whatever it is that we want to do. We add Jesus to the American dream, and then call that bastardized monstrosity Christianity. Perhaps the most troubling image from the January 6th events in Washington, D.C. was the way in which the name of Jesus and the cross that symbolizes his way and followers was so prominently displayed. Like many of you, I watched those events with a decidedly sick feeling in my stomach. My unease was both patriotic and theological in nature. Yet again, Jesus was attempting to be held hostage by people who wanted to claim his name, but wantonly disregard his way. This morning, we began a series in the Sermon on the Mount, The late John Stott described the sermon this way. The Sermon on the Mount is probably the best-known part of the teachings of Jesus, though arguably the least understood, and certainly it is the least obeyed. It is, Stott observes, the closest thing Jesus ever uttered to a manifesto. The early church certainly understood it this way. The church fathers viewed the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus' summation of what a life of discipleship looks like. See, friends, we cannot simply raise our hand and say, yes, I'm a Christian. We cannot simply declare ourselves to be followers of Jesus and then feel free to add in what that means. No, if you want to know what the Christian life ought to look like, then you need to read Sermon on the Mount. Now, in your bulletin this morning, there's an outline for our time together. There's a big idea. The big idea for this morning is this. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls us to love God and our neighbor. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls us to love God and our neighbor. Let's understand something from the very get-go. Jesus is restating the law in the Sermon on the Mount. You may recall that other places in the gospel, uh, when Jesus was asked, uh, Master, what's, Teacher, what's the greatest commandment? He said, well, the first is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is, like it, it's love your neighbor as yourself. We professed that this morning, didn't we? That we, we confessed that in our time of thinking about and confessing the law. And so the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' extended meditation on exactly what it means to love God and love my neighbor. Again, I don't just get to walk in and make it up. But Jesus, as the King of God's coming kingdom, is the one who defines exactly what loving God and loving my neighbor is supposed to look like. So, three things we want to see this morning. We want to see first, Jesus' call to wisdom. Jesus' call to wisdom. Any manifesto has two constituent parts to it. There are two things that it's trying to do. On one hand, a manifesto is proclaiming something. And on the other hand, a manifesto is an invitation It's going to proclaim one thing, and then it's going to invite you to come and be a part of the thing that it's proclaiming. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is declaring to us something that he wants us to consider, and not only to consider it, but he wants us to pursue it. He wants us to pursue a particular path. He wants us to walk in a particular way. Those of you who are Aerosmith fans, you should hear, right? Walk this way. That's what Jesus is proclaiming in the Sermon on the Mount. This is how we walk as citizens of his kingdom. Now, in this particular way, Jesus' words echo Psalm one with its call to consider and then to pursue the way of the righteous. Did you note the contrast that Jessica read for us in Psalm 1? There is a way that leads to blessing. There is a way that leads to life. But then there is also a way that leads to destruction. In fact, we're told that the wicked in Psalm 1 verse 4, the wicked are not so. They are not prosperous. They, They are not fruitful. Rather, they are like the chaff that the wind drives away. The writer of Psalm 1 is declaring to us a particular kind of reality. But he's also inviting us. He's calling us to follow and to pursue the way of the righteous. Now, as we think about the Sermon on the Mount, we need to keep in mind that we have to keep both of these ideas, the idea that this is both proclamation, but it's also an invitation. So we're to consider, but then we're also to pursue. We need to keep those things always kind of in tension. Because if we merely give ourselves to considering what Jesus is calling us to, but we never pursue it, then we're not going to have the kind of uh, blessedness that is talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. On the other hand, If all we do is pursue but we don't consider, then we're going to be dangerous of a kind of religious fanaticism. We're going to find ourselves in the ditch, as it were, with legalism. We're going to be prone to get carried away by our own passions, our own desires. And we're going to be prone to sit in judgment, or so we think, over and against our brothers and sisters in Christ who aren't doing it like we're doing it. So we need them both. We need to consider carefully, and we need to pursue wholeheartedly. But we also need to understand a further truth. In the words of C.S. Lewis, there is some deep magic at work in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount is declaring as the king what life in the kingdom is supposed to look like. So if we are submitted to King Jesus, and we are committed to living in his kingdom, this is what life ought to be. Now again, we don't merely get to claim the name of Jesus and live however we want no we are subjects in a kingdom as such we are subject to the rules and the laws of the kingdom not surprisingly then life in jesus kingdom is centered on the great commandment love god love your neighbor as yourself love god Love your neighbor as yourself. Friends, if you are here this morning and you claim to be submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, these things are not options. Our king is lovingly and graciously telling us what we need to pursue as citizens of his kingdom. Secondly, then, we we know that we need to love God. We know that we need to love God. Now, it's easy, isn't it, to say, oh, yes, I, I, I love God. Certainly. I mean, we would argue, some would say, well, I'm, I'm not an atheist, and so I guess, therefore, I believe there's a God, and uh, I guess loving him would be better than hating him or shaking my fist at him. But the Sermon on the Mount tells us in great detail what love for God ought to look like. It unpacks for us the content of a life that it's spent pursuing and loving God. And the first thing that we note is that loving God is a radically Christ-centered endeavor. It's a radically Christ-centered endeavor. See, living in this kingdom means obedience to and love for the king. Uh, I, I... it's been interesting to watch uh, social media, uh, particularly in light of the political uh, situation in which we find ourselves. Uh, folks who were, say, a month ago proclaiming great love and fidelity to one side now, as of this past week, have turned the page and they're declaring uh, their complete and utter hatred and and uh, all the ways in which the new administration already is completely inept. You can do that in a democracy. You cannot do that in Jesus' kingdom. We do not get to stand and shake our fist at Jesus and go, you know, Jesus, if I were king, I'd do it this way. Now, the problem with that is, of course, I very often like to sit and shake my fist and say, you know, Jesus, if I were king, I would do it this way. No, Jesus is the king. This is his kingdom. And the Gospels make it clear that Jesus is the one who makes the Father known. And so if we would have communion with God the Father, then empowered by the Holy Spirit, we must be wholehearted followers of God the Son. God the Son is the one who makes the Father known. And we will completely miss what's going on if we are not enlivened and empowered by the work of the Spirit. And so we have communion with the Father only through the Son, and we can come to the Son only through the Spirit. But the entire thing is centered upon the person and work of Jesus. It is Christocentric, which is a $3 word for saying it's Christ-centered. Loving God, though, also means that we're waiting for the kingdom. It means that we're waiting for the kingdom. You see, one of the things that makes American Christianity so syncretistic is that we regularly have the wrong kingdom in mind. We seem to think that the here and now is the only venue in which we can experience the blessing of of God. If God isn't giving me my best life now, as I define whatever that means, then I have the right to stand and ask questions and express my displeasure with the management. Well, the sermon puts that kind of shoddy thinking in the ground. See, right away, at the end of the very first section of this sermon, Jesus speaks of being reviled and persecuted, but it also speaks of great reward in heaven. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in houses and lands and cars and vacation and money here and now. It's not what it says, is it? It says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great where? In heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Friends, our best life could never be here and now. The kingdom of God cannot be co-opted or conscripted by any human geopolitical reality. And yet we do it all the time. We forget all the time that the kingdom in which we are waiting for is not here, it's not red, it's not blue. No, the kingdom that we are waiting for is going to come in its fullness when the Lord Jesus returns in power and in glory, not when our guy or our party gets voted into office. We're waiting. I don't know about you. I despise waiting. I hate it. In fact, I've been known in certain traffic situations to turn around and drive the other way just because I like the feeling of moving as opposed to just sitting there doing nothing. But we, for some reason, we cannot wait on the Lord. And we stand idly by and watch the kingdom be conscripted and watch the kingdom be co-opted by some sort of nationalistic agenda. There's a word for that. There's a word or there's a phrase, actually, that uh, a man, a German pastor and theologian beginning of World War II, assigned for when a certain group of people tried to take Jesus hostage and conscript him and co-opt him for their particular vision of how the world ought to work. And the phrase that Dietrich Bonhoeffer gave us was cheap grace. It's not costly. It doesn't call us to anything. In fact, it makes Jesus our servant. And it cheapens and reduces the costly grace that he purchases for us through the cross. Thirdly, then, loving God means that we live with the world to come in mind. It means that we live with the world to come in mind. Uh, Friends, Christianity, you can think of it this way. Uh, Christianity is one great exercise in reverse engineering your life. It's not to sit here and go, well, here I am, and here's where I want to be, and these are the goals, these are the things I want to accomplish. No, Christianity says, listen, all of history is moving towards a particular goal. That the God who created everything is moving his creation towards a particular event. We don't have it yet, but we know that it's coming. And because that's true, because all of of history is moving towards this particular goal, we understand that we can't have all the blessings of God's kingdom now because God's rule and reign are not experienced fully. The kingdom has been inaugurated, but it has not been consummated. See, the full blessing of God's kingdom and God's rule will be experienced only when God brings his kingdom from heaven to earth, vanquishes his enemies, and establishes justice and peace among his new creation. So all the promises that are made repeatedly and continually about what a wonderful world it will be and how great it could be if we just do X, Y, Z, and life will be fantastic. Well, it might be better. But friends, the things that we are hoping for and the things that we want to see, because at the end of the day, we are human beings and we're created in God's image. Those things will not happen until God brings His kingdom from heaven to earth. So until then, as Paul says, we wait and we groan. Until then, kingdom living is an exercise in in paradoxical living. There's loss and longing, suffering and persecution, and Jesus says those things are combined and they're tied to happiness and joy and satisfaction and peace. You're blessed when you suffer. You're blessed when you mourn. You're blessed when you are persecuted. See, that's what it means to live now with the world to come in mind. The church fathers used to put it this way, if the empire is applauding us, clearly we're not doing it right. If Caesar loves what Christ is proclaiming, and the Christ that is being proclaimed is not the Christ of the Bible. The sermon on the mount focuses our attention on this paradoxical kind of living. It's a life that understands the best is yet to come. It's not now, but it is coming. Well, that's the love for God portion of the sermon. But we're also called to love our neighbor. This is Jesus' restatement of the law. And as we've said, the law can be summarized in these two great commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And so we understand that loving our neighbor means that we're going to walk the path of wisdom. We're going to see more about that next week when we get into the Beatitudes. But we need to understand that this particular sermon, this manifesto, creates a community. And because this is Jesus uh, stating and restating the law, it means that Jesus is recreating and redefining what it means to be the people of God. It isn't just about ethnic identity. No, it's about fidelity to the manifesto that Jesus is proclaiming. Jesus makes it abundantly clear in the Gospels That following him, the life of following Jesus, is not a choose-your-own-adventure scenario. Have you ever read any of those books? When I was a kid, we had a couple of them. You'd read certain pages, and they'd give you a decision, and you could go, if you want to do this, go to this page. If you want to do this, go to this page. And you could turn the page, and you could create your own adventure. Well, friends, that's not the Christian life. The Christian life is not that you and I somehow get to fill in the blanks. We can do the stuff we like, but the things that we don't care so much for, no. And so the Christian life creates then this community. It creates a community of people who understand what we're going to hear in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Turn over just a page if you would. Towards the tail end of the sermon, Jesus says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. So here's what's going on. The sermon is reminding us that the Christian life is this community of people who by God's grace have entered by the narrow gate and they're on the hard path. They're traveling towards the life that Jesus promises. But again, so often that is not what is communicated as Christianity. We're told by our culture And we're told, sadly, within the church, that Jesus wants us to walk the path of comfort. We're told that Jesus wants us to walk the path of happiness. We're told as a society that you need to do it your way. That you walk the path that you want to walk and not the path that the king calls you to walk. Friends, one of the things that the Sermon on the Mount is doing is it's creating a kind of countercultural community. It's creating a group of people who understand that we've entered by the narrow gate, we're on the hard way, and I'm going to need all the help I can get on that way. I'm going to need my brothers and sisters in Christ because there are going to be days in which I'm going to say this path is too narrow and it's too hard. And so loving my neighbor means that I'm going to walk the path of wisdom and I'm going to do it with my brother and sister in Christ. I'm going to do so with this community of faith. But this isn't just about the church. This isn't just about those who, by God's grace, are committed to this similar path of wisdom. Loving our neighbor also means that we're seeking the flourishing of sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. And you're going, well, Pastor, what does it mean to seek their flourishing? Don't worry, Jesus is going to unpack that for us. But this sermon is very concerned with how my relationship with God is going to affect my relationship with my fellow human beings. From Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, Jesus tells us something really important about how this community that's committed to the narrow way about the impact that we're supposed to have on the world around us. He says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, You're the salt of the earth. And then in verse 14, You are the light of the world. So our function in a world that is decaying and dark is to serve as a preservative and a source of light. When you read on, beginning in verse 21 of Matthew 5, Jesus is very concerned that the flourishing of sons of Adam and daughters of Eve come to the forefront. Think about the things that Jesus is going to talk about. And if you have an ESV, the heading is right in front of you. Beginning in front of Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, the heading is anger. Now, we all know we can be at, angry at ourselves, but in reality, my anger is much more satisfying if I'm upset at Matt or at Amy or at Nathaniel. It's way more gratifying if it's at my parents'. That's how anger works. Yeah, I can be angry at myself, but really, I need, an, I need an object outside of me to be angry with. And Jesus comes along and says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Huh. What's the heading at the top of verse 27? It's okay. I know it's church, but you can say that word here. Lost. Chapter 31, divorce. Chapter 33, excuse me, verse 33, oaths. Verse 38, retaliation. Here's the hard one. Right before verse 43, Anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, and loves for for one's enemies sets our King's standard for what it looks like to orient our lives with others in mind. Friends, the point of the Christian life is not for you to get yours. No, the point of the Christian life is to give our lives away in service for our King and for the benefit of others see when we have this kind of others oriented view it can help us diagnose and be aware of one of the issues that's beguiling our national discourse and the culture in which we live my identity is no longer in my party or in my orientation or in any other thing that i want to say no my identity is found in my king and I'm no longer concerned primarily about my own identity, and I no longer view politics as a way to claim power and for me to get or to keep mine. Instead, I view every opportunity in the public square as the chance to serve my fellow sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, because that's what my king calls me to. That's the upside down ethos, the upside down life that constitutes this king and this kingdom. Now, if you're here this morning, you're going, well, pastor, that sounds great, but, you know, people are mean. And there are people out there that don't really deserve this kind of care and this kind of love and this kind of thinking for them, because if you do that, they're just going to run right over the top of you. So this sounds great. It's Sunday morning at church. But let's get real for a second. Okay. Well, let me ask you a question then. What if Jesus had approached the cross the same way that you are pushing back as we think about our shared life together? What if Jesus had said, God, don't you know those people really aren't worth this? God, I want mine. I want you in your justice to bestow upon me that which is rightfully mine. Forget about those people. They can fight for theirs. If Christ had done that, do you know where we would be? As we think about the Sermon on the Mount, friends, we need to remember that Jesus doesn't just proclaim the virtues of the kingdom. He embodied them. So when Jesus says, love your enemy, He embodied it. He embodied it When his hands were spread and the nails were driven through his hands and in his feet, he embodied it when the spear was thrust into his side and out came blood and water. Friends, our king is not telling us hypocritically to do what I say and not as I do. No, he both proclaims And embodies the sermon that we're going to consider the table reminds us of that for the table we see and smell and touch and taste what it is that the Lord Jesus did on our behalf he did not say to God God I just want mine they can fend for themselves no he was obedient Paul reminds us, even to the point of death on a cross. And so as those who profess and confess to be Jesus' followers, we come to the table understanding that Jesus both proclaims the kingdom, but he also embodies the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for these few moments this morning, and thank you for the obedience of your Son. That He does not merely proclaim to us something that He then shows in His own life and actions is too lofty, or too hard, or too costly. Thank you that the Lord Jesus proclaims to us and embodies for us exactly what it means to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Father, forgive us. Too often we think that being your children means that you've become our servant, you've become our genie, and you're supposed to be there to give us all the stuff we think we want. Help us to see that we are your servants and you are our king. Help us to live with the kingdom to come in mind and to not get distracted and embroiled or discouraged by all of the turmoil and all the shenanigans and all the foolishness that passes for kingdom discourse, not only in our world, but also within those who profess to be a part of your church. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.